uh, we f find ourselves on page eight. What we reviewed last week is we went through basically the first four, four parts of the Seder, the, ki the Kadesh, which refers to Kiddush, or Achatz, which refers to the washing of hands that is not for the eating of bread, but is a special washing of the hands for the Seder night. Uh, it's a special washing of the hands for the Seder night. And the th uh, interestingly enough, I didn't mention this last week, by the way, that according to some commentaries, the idea of washing one's hands in a special washing before the Seder really begins, after Kiddush, but really before... That I talked about last week, why you would make Kiddush and then wash your hands. But the whole idea of washing your hands that's not for bread, okay, and that you actually purposely eat a vegetable that has to be dipped in order to wash your hands... So the commentaries explain that this works with the concept that the Seder night, everybody is, is a guest at God's table. All right? In other words, there's a concept that this was the night that the Jewish people became free. But the concept of freedom, as we're going to talk about it, it's going to come up a lot in tonight's discussions of the Haggadah. The concept of the freedom that the Jew received was that he became free from things that held him captive and enabled him to, to commit himself and obligate himself to a true master, to a true God. One who, through the obligation and through the, through the commitment to, would actually help the person grow as opposed to limit the person's growth. No human being is intended to be subservient to another individual and in the sense of being subservient, grow from being subservient to flesh and blood. But man's subservience to uh, a God of greatness is something that will actually help him grow and actually help him attain an internal freedom. Right? So the night of the Seder is a night in which we are granted freedom. So most of us have the picture, granted freedom, that means that it's like little kids that are rushing out of the classroom into the schoolyard for recess. But that's not really what the vision of freedom is at the Seder night. The vision of freedom on the Seder night is that by the freedom that we get, we have the opportunity of sharing time with God. And that's the idea of the Seder. The idea of the Seder is that this is the night that we all come together around the table and we're, so to speak, celebrating the fact that we can now be guests of God. Before there was no time to sit and to, and to, and to so to speak, develop that kind of a relationship with God. Tonight that we became free, where we can enjoy God's company. Right? And therefore the Zohar Kaddish says that everything that happens at the Seder is Mishulchan Gavoa Kazachi, which means that I'm getting everything off the royal table. It's that kind of a concept. According to some commentaries, the reason why white is worn at the Seder has a lot to do with the fact that you are a guest at the royal table of God. Now, going along with that same concept, the idea of washing is, is so to speak, saying that there's a different standard of washing when you're eating at the royal table. When you're eating at your own table, so you wash for bread and you don't wash for other things. But when you're eating at a royal table, there's a special kind of washing, right? And that's something which is very worthwhile to keep in mind, that when you finish Kiddush and you go into the kitchen or wherever else you have your, 
your 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 source of water and you wash it's it's almost with a sense of I'm washing so that I should be able to sit at a table where God is my host and that's a very that's a very interesting and it's a very beautiful concept and an important mindset in any case that was Urchatz then we did Karpas which is dipping the vegetable in the salt water and making the blessing Bare Priyadama and then we had Yachatz which is breaking the middle matzah into two uneven parts the larger of the two parts is hidden away for the dessert after the meal it's referred to as Afikoman or in the Seder it's Tzafam right? and the smaller broken part is the part that we will later say the entire Haggadah over and we spoke a lot about the symbolism that's behind that last week why it's the smaller part and, the bro- and it's broken and, w- and that entire thing we spoke about last week and that's basically where we got and we began Magid which is on page 8 which is the fifth thing Magid basically means to tell the story of our exodus from Egypt that's really what it is and we explained a little bit where the word comes from now the the um, the whole institution of Magid the whole institution of, of, of telling the story I pointed out last week is a biblical command of Sipur Yitzias Mitzrayim telling the story telling the story of our going out of Egypt which means to clarify it make it brilliant make it clear through detailing it okay and through discussing it and through and and we said that this is a biblical command, as it says in the verse, so that you should be able to tell it over to your children everything that I did to Mitzrayim and how I took you out of Mitzrayim with a, with a strong arm. So we pointed out last week that it's a biblical command, okay? And therefore, the idea, the idea of, of, of telling of the story of going out of Egypt it should not be diminished to, so to speak, this is the prayers that we have to have, but the Seder is really the meal. Okay? In other words, very often there's a misconception. We run through the Seder because that's the prayers. And then when we get to the meal, that's the major portion of what the Seder is all about. The truth of the matter is that the matzah of the Seder is also a biblical command of the Seder. But certainly the gefilte fish and the matzah balls and, and everything else is not the centrality of the Seder night. I'm not saying that it's not important, but it's not the centrality of the Seder night. The centrality of the Seder night okay, is my involvement with what happened when we left Egypt. And we're going to talk why it is that way. Because there is um, there, there's a concept that through my involvement in discussing what happened when we left Egypt, on the night that we left, we can link ourselves into the process of redemption of that night. In other words, there is a concept in all holidays. Let me try to make this a little bit clearer. There's a concept in all holidays that holidays are one-time events which occurred, and then all years afterwards, it's commemorative in nature. There's a concept in Judaism which the Kedusha Slavi, the Badichava, speaks about at great length, and he says that whatever happened in a period of time becomes a creation of that period of time. And as a Jew goes through the cycle of the year, he revisits the spiritual energy or the spiritual gift of that period of time. 
So in other words, for instance, if, uh, if Passover is a time of freedom and redemption, it's etched into that period of time. There's an essence in that time which can allow a person that uses it well to gain a freedom that he's looking for. The, the holiday of Shavuos is when we got the Torah. Is a period of time that a person that's struggling with trying to understand, trying to understand the wisdom of Taira, that's the that's the night, okay? That's the night that if he studies Taira and he prays to understand Taira, he's going to be able to gain something. It's his Yom Kippur for learning of Taira, Shavuos night. And so when we go through all of the holidays, they're creations in time. Now, going along with that same idea when we come to the Passover holiday and we want to be able to, so to speak, gain access to the gift of freedom, the gift of redemption that's in the night, how do we do it? How do we do it? We do it by going through what they went through. Now, not necessarily physically going through it, but learning about it, talking about it, explaining it, understanding what it's about. And that's what gives us the bridge of coming into the essence of the time. That's what gives us the Kedusha, the holiness that's unique to that period of time. So therefore, we'll see later on in the Haggadah, there's a statement which is made in the Haggadah, Chayav Adam Liris as Atzmai Ki'ilu Hu A person has to have the obligation of, uh, he, he has to fulfill the obligation of actually seeing how he went out of Mitzrayim. Now, how does that happen? What, I go in some kind of sophisticated time machine back a couple of the thousands of years. Like, what is that supposed to mean? What it's supposed to mean is that through Sipur Yitzias Mitzrayim and through the mitzvahs of the night, what a person does is that he brings into himself the, the Kedusha, the unique holiness of freedom and redemption that's part and parcel of that period of time. And then he can sense that he's closer to a, a personal freedom that he might need. Every person has some level of freedom that he's struggling for in some area. No person, as long as in, they're in this world and they're challenged by the challenges of this world, is totally free. The whole definition of a challenge is that I'm not fr free, I'm being contested. Okay, I'm being contested. Will I go this way? Will I go that way? Will this persuade me? Will that persuade me? Will this influence me or will that influence me? So the sense that we get that we too can experience freedom in our own little personal ways, okay, is very much the end result of talking about Yitzhiyas Misraim. There's in fact... Uh, it's brought down in custom that on the night of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, besides talking about all the miracles that happened to us in yesteryear, a Jew on the night of, y of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is also supposed to recount the miracles that happened in his life on that night as well. Why? Why? For the simple reason that the whole issue of redemption and freedom has to come to the level that the person can relate to it in a personal way too. I know what this is all about because I experienced it on some level at some point in time. Okay? So in other words, the whole atmosphere is feel God's hand, feel God's doing, feel God's pulling you out of a situation 
that if, you, if certain things would have happened, you would have been stuck there forever and be thankful for them. And that's also part of the whole spirit of what it's about. I remember very vividly, I mean, some of the personal freedoms that we can remember on, on the night of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim can be very personal in nature because they can have a lot to do with personal struggles, spiritual struggles, and all of the like. But I remember very vividly, uh, years ago, uh, when my father made the Seder, he invariably always, in the middle of talking about Sipur Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, he spoke about the years how he took the last train out with the Mir Yeshiva from Siberia, from Poland, the very last train that went out before the Nazis came in and destroyed Poland. And his survival miraculously in Shanghai for the years of the war in Shanghai and Japan and all of that. And I often wonder, like, where does this come into it? But the truth of the matter is that every person has Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. Every person has certain Yitzhiyah Mitzrayims. And this is the night to not only ex- understand, appreciate, and express appreciation for that, that national freedom, but for the personal freedom as well. That's our link. That's our link to, to, to what the night is all about. And we hope that we'll be able to gain from the night. And that's one of the functions of Sipri Yitzhiya Mitzrayim. That's one of the functions. Okay, now, how does Sipri Yitzhiya Mitzrayim go? How does it happen? Well, we see at the very beginning of Magid that the introduction to, to the entire process is with questions. Okay? And this is, seen, this is seen as a primary form of discussion. Okay? A question. Okay? A question is a quest. A question is a thirst for knowledge. Where there is a quest and there is a thirst for knowledge, the knowledge that will then come Will meet, will have a place where it will reach. All right. The the idea, for instance, that knowledge is knowledge, and I might be totally disinterested in, in it, but I will absorb it, is really really not true. The extent of what of how much knowledge becomes absorbed within ourselves is very much related to the extent of interest that we have, thirst that we have for it. A question is an expression of thirst. It's an expression of interest. And <clears throat> what we try to do at the Seder night is not is to encourage a thirst and an interest on the part of the next generation. So the night of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim is not only a night in which we detail our own personal freedoms through accessing the freedom of the night, but it is also a night that by reliving everything... We take the opportunity of reliving our going out of Mitzrayim to give that to our children. In other words, why do we relive it? Because by reliving it, it becomes more, you can, you can, you can touch it more, you can feel it more, you can be excited about it more, and then it's a commodity that you can give to the next generation. You can give it to your children. And that's why there's a delicate balance that has to be created. Right? A delicate balance at the Seder night, to run through the whole Haggadah and to get to the meal, to get to the matzah balls and chicken, is wrong because you're missing the whole point. On the other hand, to, to get to totally involved in all of the nuances of the story and your kids fall asleep in the middle because they're utterly bored is also missing the point. Right? So there is a delicate balance that has to be created 
where you try to give or try to generate as much interest as you can in the children that are around the table or the people that are around the table, not even necessarily children, but people that you want to generate an interest in what's going on, okay, but not at the expense that they become disinterested. So there's that very delicate balance that you have to do between the two. There were those that, di- that addressed the issue of generating interest uh, for their children, then went on to the Seder, finished up the Seder, put the children to sleep, and then continued to discuss Sipur Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim into the wee hours of the morning. That's also fine. So there's that delicate balance where we have to know that we have to relive it, but we have to also give a live commodity to the next generation. It is very much, it is very much a holiday that should be dedicated that if we have the opportunity to give it to those that don't know that they should have the opportunity to receive it. So there's that very delicate balance that you have to don't forget about the children and don't focus on the things that are not the centrality of what the night is all about. Okay, so there are four questions. Okay, the four questions deal with the differences between the night of the Seder and the other nights of the year. Okay, the first question is that all year long we don't make a distinction between eating leavened and unleavened bread. On the night of the Seder, we make the point of only eating matzah, okay, and we are prohibited from eating any form of chametz. Why the difference? That's question number one. The second question is. We eat vegetables all other nights of the year. Tonight, there seems to be a stress on a bitter vegetable. Why? The third question is that we don't really uh, involve ourselves in the dippings every night of the year. This night, we make a point of dipping twice. Once the vegetable in the salt water, the second time will be the marar in that, in that cement-like looking uh, thing called charoses. And the fourth question is that this night we make a point of sitting as free people in a reclined position as opposed to any other position. These are the four questions that are asked. What makes this night different from all other nights? Now, the truth of the matter is that that there are many, many beautiful interpretations to the Manishtana, what the Manishtana is all about. But I think that where we should begin with, and maybe, God willing, if we have time left in the series, we'll come back and we'll give, we'll go back and we'll give some homiletical kind of definitions to the Manishtana, which happen to be beautiful. But let's deal with the, the simple things first. There's chametz and matzah, okay? The, the fact that we eat chametz all year and only matzah on Pesach. By the way, the biblical command to eat matzah is only the first night, rabbinically the second night. And all the other nights of Pesach, all the other days of Pesach, we're not required to eat matzah. We're just prohibited from eating chametz. If we do eat matzah, we have a mitzvah for it. But we're not obligated to eat the matzah the other days. All right? So th- let's start with that. Let's start with, with this. Let's start with chametz and matzah. Because we really didn't talk anything about the concept of chametz and matzah at all. Okay? So let's try to understand what chametz and matzah is all about. <coughs> the Madrish the Madrish teaches us
Now, another reason why I'm settling in on matzah just before I go into what the Medrash teaches us is that the Gemara says that from the whole Haggadah, let's say a person finds it difficult to say the Haggadah. Let's say you have people around your table that it's very difficult for them to plow through it. Is there any minimum amount that you can do that's like the central part of the Haggadah? So there is. The Gemara says that as long as a person says Pesach, Matzah, and Marer on the night of the Seder and gives some kind of a brief description and explanation of each one, he has fulfilled his requirement on the night of the Seder. Right? So if you're put into that kind of a position, that's something that you can do. Pesach obviously refers to the Paschal Lamb. Matzah refers to the eating of matzah and why we eat matzah. And myrrh refers to why we eat the bitter herbs. So obviously, matzah serves a very, very central role in what the whole accessing of freedom on the Seder night is all about. Other things you can get away without saying if it's difficult, but not Pesach, Matzah, Meir. What's the uniqueness of Matzah? <coughs> well, the Gemara says, the Gemara says that, <coughs> that there are three things, there are three things which are referred to as Rishon in our tradition, that they are referred to as first or number one in our tradition. Those three things are Pesach, Sukkot, and the Lulav. These are the three things that are referred to in the sense of Rishon. These are the things that are... Re- oh, excuse me. Esav is referred to as Rishon, I'm sorry, Esav is referred to, Pesach is called Rishon, Sukkot is called Rishon, and Lulav is referred to as Rishon, as I said it. Pesach, Sukkot, and Lulav are all referred to as Rishon. When it starts talking about Pesach, it talks about Rishon, the first, the number one. Sukkot as well, and Lulav as well. So the Gemara says, and we're not going to go into Sukkot and Lulav right now, we'll just concentrate on Pesach. The Gemara says that if you keep the mitzvah of, uh, that's unique to Pesach, which obviously is the matzah, and not eating the chametz, so then I will conquer, I will help you conquer the enemy which is called Rishon. Who is the enemy that is called Rishon? So the Madrish says, Esav. Esav. If you look at the, at, at the portion of Taldos, with the birth of the twins, Yaakov and Esav, what, how is Esav referred to? The first one came out and he was full of hair and he was Adam and he was red and he called his, and his name was called Asaph. So what is the Medrash saying? The Medrash is saying something which seemingly is very enigmatic. The Medrash is saying if you keep Pesach with eating the matzah and staying away from chametz, I will help you conquer the enemy that is called Rishon. In other words, you keep the Rishon and you'll be able to conquer the enemy who is Rishon. Who is Esav? Now, what on earth is going on over here? So the commentaries say a very interesting thing. The commentaries say that one of the powers that Esav has is his falseness. His giving a false impression. His giving a false image. The perfect example of this is the fact that Esav went to his father Yitzchak and wanted to fool his father into believing that he was a tzaddik. And he asked him, how do you tithe salt? 
Right? Now, salt doesn't have to be tithed. But he wanted to show his father they were super from and pull the wool, o- wool over his ha- eyes. So he gave an appearance of being from. Okay? While inside he was really a phony, he gives the appearance of being from. Another example. Okay? When Yaakov was 40, he got married. So Asaph said, aha, that's the, the right age to get married. So he went, he went ahead and he, get, he married somebody at the age of 40. Never mind that he was already married, and never mind that he had committed many adulterous acts before that. But he wanted to give the appearance that he's going to do all of the things that other from people do, while underneath, he is really false. Our Medrash compares Asaph to a chazer, to a, to a, to a pig. Now, what, what's the comparison to a pig? So the Gemara says, because a chazer, there are two simanim. You have to have two signs of being a kosher animal. The split hoof, and that you're malagere, that you chew your cud. Now, the chazer puts out his foot, so to speak, as if to say, I'm kosher, while he's really not, because he doesn't chew his cud. So the Madrish says that that's Asaph's characteristic. He tries to make himself... Uh, appear to you to be kosher, to be something that is valid and legitimate, while inside it's all rotten, it's all phony baloney. And this is the way he functions. And that's why he's a threat. Because if somebody would come out right and tell you what he is and be upfront, so make your choice. Do you want to be with me or don't you want to be with me? But what Asaph's position is, is I'm like you. I'm all right while really inside he's not. Let me give you an example of this, just in case you're wondering what this means. When Yaakov is going to confront his, his brother Esau, who is ready to kill him, okay, Yaakov says, Yaakov says, Yaakov prays to God and says to God, Hatsileni now miyad achi miyad esav. Okay? Save me from my brother's hand. Save me from esav. That's how he prays to God. So all of the commentaries say the problem wasn't that he was a brother. The problem was that he was esav. So when esav is turning to God and saying to God, Save me from my brother's hand. Save me from esav. Like God knew that Esav was his brother. So the point was, save me from the Esav. Okay? He, he's not a brother. I mean, he certainly wasn't acting as a brother. So why is Yaakov referring to him as a brother? So Yaakov was very intelligent. Yaakov was very smart. Yaakov was saying, save me from the Esav that shows me that he's a threat and save me from the Esav that behaves like my brother. In other words, sometimes the greatest threat lies when he comes with brotherhood, when he comes with love, when he comes with peace, when he comes with ecumenism, when he comes with all of those things, that's the bigger threat. After Yaakov and Esau confronted each other and, and uh, Yaakov appeased Esau, Esau said, come together, let's live together. And Yaakov said, thanks, but no thanks. There'll be a time when we two can live together, but not now. Why? Because Yaakov understood that while Esav wouldn't be belligerent, but Yaakov would be able to destroy Esav would be able to destroy Yaakov with love and peace. And that's what Yaakov understood. And Yaakov understood that sometimes that's the greater threat. Now, understanding that, there's a remarkable comparison to Chametz and Matzah. 
Okay. What's the comparison to chametz and matzah? The comparison is the following. When you put that ingredient into the bread that makes the bread rise, okay, what you're left with, and certainly if you buy challah from certain bakeries, you come home with this big challah, you cut it open, and then lo and behold, there's a big gaping hole in the middle of the challah inside. Why? Because it's been blown up. So its appearance is the appearance of something very big. But in reality, how much content is there? It's much smaller. But the procedure, the chametz procedure, the chametz process, the leavening process, makes something appear more than it really is. Okay? More than it really is. That's what chametz is. That's what chametz is. And to a certain extent, because it has that feature, it's almost like the, uh, a false appearance kind of thing. So therefore, what we're told is that we're to stay away. We're to stay away from chametz at the beginning of our freedom. Why? Because there's a characteristic in chametz which says I can make something look like it really isn't. Right? And at the beginning of our freedom process, we don't want to ingest that kind of thing. Now, the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is that the concept behind kashras in general, of what is kosher and not kosher, is also the same concept. That by ingesting something that's not kosher, there are certain spiritual characteristics that are attached to every kind of food. It's not just material food, but there's a spirituality, a level of spirit that's connected to all foods. Some positive, some negative. I don't want to eat something that has a spiritually negative connection because then that goes through my bloodstream. And then when I'm trying to be, be spiritual, I have something in my system that's fighting against it. There's something cooking inside of me that's, that's making it hard for me. Let's say, for instance, I have to, I have to uh, walk on a tightrope. So I have to be very st steady and very balanced as I go across the tightrope. Right? But right before I go across the tightrope, I take a medicine that gives a person the jitters. So what is the person going to say to themselves? They're going to say to themselves, no, I'm going to keep concentrating to go walk across the tightrope. But if the stuff is in the system that gives a person the jitters, as much as he tries, but if the stuff is going through the system, he's going to jitter. And he's not going to be able to walk the tightrope. Right? That's a little bit what the concept of kashrut is. Because it's too much. It's in the bloodstream. It's like fighting anesthesia. Right? You can't fight it. Once it's there, you're out of the light. You can't fight it. There is such a concept that by ingesting it, you're bringing it in on a level that you can't fight it anymore. Similarly, chametz also is that kind of a thing. That at the beginning of our freedom, we don't want to ingest that that has that quality. We don't want to ingest that which has that quality. Now, you'll ask a very interesting question. But chametz is not chazer all year long. All year long we eat chametz. It's only Pesach that we don't eat chametz. So if the logic behind chametz is that what? that it's an ingredient that makes things appear like they're not, and that's counterproductive to my spirituality. Don't eat something that's going to make you look at things the way they're not, and make things look the way they are, you know, bigger than they really are, and so on. 
So how come you eat chametz all year long? That's the first question of the Manishtana. Manishtana halayla hazemi kol haleilas shebechol haleilas all other nights of the year anu eichum chametz umatzah we say that we can ingest both and even though we're very conscious of what we eat we say chametz is alright halayla hazeh kulay matzah but this night we can't this night it must be only matzah it doesn't make sense that's what the question is now the truth of the matter is that if you look for the answer to this question the way that I gave the question it's hard to see it in the lines and I'm not going to hold you on a string here waiting for the answer I'll tell you what the answer is and then when we go through the Haggadah we'll hopefully be able to point to it as well the answer is one very simple answer you don't give a month old baby rib steak in other words in other words, when a person is at the beginning of developing a system, you have to start with easy things, e- things that are easy to digest. You have to start with liquids, and then with semi-salads, and then with beech nut number one, and then beech nut number two, and beech nut number three, and you go in stages. Why? Does that mean that, that, it, that the, the rib steak's not good? No, the rib steak's fine. There's no problem with rib steak but the child's system is not ready to deal with it. When the child's system will be ready to deal with it, fine. But until it's... And that's the concept of the night that we went out of Mitzrayim. The night that we went out of Mitzrayim, we were like newborn babies in terms of the... uh, in terms of the, the new spirituality that we were coming into. We were being literally yanked away from an unnatural source that we were... That we, were, that we were linked up with and that we were stuck to, and we were, so to speak, making a go of it on our own with a totally new source. We were weaned away from 210 years of what Egypt was and basically beginning to digest very powerful food. And therefore, God said at the beginning of this, your menu has to be curtailed in order that you should be able to gain strength slowly. Sure, with time, you'll gain the strength and you'll gain the health, and then you can eat anything and use it, provided it's not something that's strafe. Then you'll be able to handle chametz, because once you're strong enough, you'll be able to make the distinctions between what is and what appears to be. But right now, at the very beginning of your freedom to make the distinctions between what is and what it appears to be is much more difficult to do. So therefore, at the beginning of your process, we have chametz. We, 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 we forbid chametz. Now, this is a very, very interesting thing because those of you that are familiar know that uh, connected to the Passover holiday, we bring a, um, a, um, an offering from the harvest from barley which is from the earliest things that are harvested in the field and that is not permitted to be chametz the mincha saomer the offering that comes to celebrate the new crop of har- of, 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 of the um, of the grains is not allowed to be uh, made baked in a way that it becomes chametz and that's on the day after the first day of Pesach, and it's called Minchas Omer. On the other hand, seven weeks later, 
on Shavuos, we also bring an offering that comes from the grain, from the grain of wheat, which is also the new crop for that year, and that is purposefully supposed to be chametz. Now, here you have a very dramatic thing going on over here. When it comes to the mincha for the barley, which is at the beginning of the process, it must be matzah. Okay? When we come to Shavuos seven weeks later, when we have the new crop of wheat, it must be chametz. What has transpired? What has transpired in the seven weeks is that I have gained and internalized the freedom, and I have come to the point of being worthy to receive Torah. Once you have Torah, you can deal with what is and what appears to be. But until you go through that preparation process and you receive the Torah, you really don't have the yardsticks to be able to distinguish between what's true and what's not. But once you do go through the preparation and you do have the Torah, you are expected to make the discriminating choices, and that's all part of what growing is. So when it comes to Pesach, we say temporarily, let's keep that out of the diet because you can't handle it yet. You're not strong enough to handle it. But by the time Shavuos comes around and you've prepared yourself for Tyra, then you're strong enough to already handle it. Right? So it's a very interesting thing that the concept of chametz, you know what the concept of chametz and matzah teaches me on the night of Pesach? It's teaching me a very fundamental thing in spiritual growth. Everything is a process. In other words, the question is, chametz is good all year long, why isn't it good on the night of Pesach? And what's the answer? It depends where in your process you are. If you're at the beginning of the process, chametz is not good. Sometime later on, chametz is good. In other words, what does it mean? That as a person grows, the nature of his challenges and the nature of what he has to accomplish also changes. Okay? That is a very, very beautiful message of freedom. Because what it says is that what is not necessarily good for you at the beginning can become better, good for you later on. What does that indicate? That there's a change that there's a freedom that I'm receiving that I couldn't necessarily exercise at the beginning. At the beginning, I wasn't free to exercise the choice of discriminating between right and wrong. But eventually, I'll get to the point of having the freedom to make those discriminating choices. So that's a message of, of a momentum of freedom. Right? And that's really the concept of what's behind it. Now, there's some very interesting things here also. <coughs> In the Torah, there is a concept of harchaka. There's a concept of making a gate, making a fence, staying a distance away from something. Okay? But all of the gates and fences that the Torah talks about are basically uh, of the order, listen to the rabbis and their ordinances in what they deem is a, an appropriate gate or fence. So what is the gate and fence after everything is said and done? It's a, it's a rabbinical obligation. It's a darabanan to keep it, not biblical. There is only one thing that is a gate and a fence, okay, that, that it has a, is of a, of a biblical order. What is it? It's chametz. Let me show you how. From when aren't you allowed to eat chametz? Biblically, from when are you not allowed to eat chametz? From half of the day on the 14th day of Nisan. Half, in other words, the second half of the day of Erev Pesach 
is already forbidden to eat chametz. There, we go even further and we move it up to the end of the fourth hour, okay, the end, for other reasons. But the second half of the day is already forbidden in chametz. That's the only place where we... And why is it? So that you shouldn't come to eat chametz on, on Pesach. But here it's biblical. In every other gate that you're trying to stay away from something, it's rabbinic. The only place that the Torah itself makes a gate, which means that the gate itself is a biblical obligation, is chametz. Why? So the commentaries explain very simply. Because <coughs> when you're dealing with falseness, you can't be you can't be far enough away. The Tyrus says, Midvar Sheker Tirchak. The Tyrus says, stay far, far away from falseness. Why? Because once a person wor- wor- uh, works with a false premise, there's no way of any of his decisions to be known if they're good or not. Because if they're based on a false premise, everything uh, evolves from that false premise. So therefore the Torah itself says, Sheker you got to stay away from. You got to do everything that you can to stay away from falseness. You know the truth, but you're not now ready for it. You're challenged by it, fine. Say so. It's true. I'm not ready for it. That's one thing that's very, that's virtuous. But don't get caught up in the trap of, of, of an illusion. That what you're doing is a mystery when it really isn't. That's the worst thing. Because when you, when you change the picture, when you change the picture, so then you're always making decisions based upon a, a, a warped perce- perception of things. So therefore the commentaries say that with falseness there are no, there's no compromises. And there, 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 that particular area of the Torah has a biblical gate that from Erev Pesach you already don't touch it. By the way, this shows itself up in another place as well. When we raise children, one of the things that we, ha- we are obligated to come down hard on more than other things is if we see that they're not being honest. In other words, of, of, in other words there, there, there's all kinds of discussions uh, about how we reprimand children, what should we make a fuss about, what should we, we even give a patch when it's necessary about in chinuch and raising of children. And it's clear, the, without any question, in all of the commentaries, that sheker is one thing that you cannot let go by. Fibbing, falseness, lies, exaggeration, all of that, you must, you must stress it very, very, very early on because if one becomes used to living with false premises, everything else that becomes built on top of it can't be stronger than the weak, weak premise that was built on falseness to begin with. Now, obviously, it also requires that the parents should be honest. If parents are not honest, the first ones that know it are the children. And when parents are not honest, children don't feel any, compo- any compelling thing to be honest either. So there, it really starts with the parents as well. So basically, and now let's go back to the Medrash. So the Medrash says, if you'll keep Pesach and you won't eat chametz, then you will be able to conquer the Esav then you will be able to conquer not the person Esav, but that spiritual negative force that wants you to live in illusion, that wants you to live in the falseness. In other words, listen to my recipe. Don't allow chametz into the system. Keep to the, keep to the menu of health of Pesach, 
and then you'll have the strength of being able to deal with Asaph, which means the spiritual negative force that wants to make things look better than they really are or more important than they really are. Now, there's another concept here also which I'm going to get into in very great depth after Passover, okay, in the first Chumash Shir after Pesach. Almost all years after Pesach, the portion of the week that we read is Shemini. And Shemini is the portion of the Torah that talks with, about all the laws of Kashrus. And the commentaries ask, what's the connection of Kashrus after Pesach? And the commentaries say that because Chametz and Matzah was one level of Kashrus, now after Pesach we say, now that you have benefited from the observance of that regulation of chametz and matzah, now you can drop it. Chametz you can eat. You don't have to only eat matzah. But I still want you to protect the menu. In other words, keep up the concept of watching what you bring into yourself by the laws of Shemini, the laws that are detailed in the portion of Shemini. Now, there's something here that I want to touch on, even though it really relates to, to the portion of the week class, but it really relates to the night of Pesach as well. The Zohar HaKadosh teaches us that Matzah is referred to as Mechla de Mehem Nusa. What does that mean? In plain English it means bread of belief. What does that mean? So the Zohar explains that a person that observes the mitzvah of eating Matzah will gain an innate belief or will be able to de- tackle issues of belief much better. What is the Zohar saying? What the Zohar is saying is that there are many levels of belief that are very subtle. And if our system is polluted with negative forces from the things that we ate that are negative, it's very hard to feel the truth, to sense the truth, to have the in- that intuitive sense of what's true and what's not true. It's very difficult. On the other hand, if we're careful about what we eat, then we, we gain from it in a clarity, a sensitivity that makes me be able to deal with concepts of belief in a more plausible way. A person that will keep kashras will have an easier time struggling with concepts of belief to come up with, in, with answers than the person that doesn't. Because he's not fighting something that's cooking in the opposite direction in his system. It's very, very interesting <coughs> Now, when the laws of Kashus were given, who did God give them to? God gave many of the commands directly to Moses, others to, to Moses and Aaron together. Why was Aaron included in the command of Kashrus, in the teaching, in the original teaching? So the commentaries say, because Aaron had just lived through seeing two of his children dying, for having gone into the Holy of Holies without permission, and he did not question God. He demanded of himself a level of belief. So God said if Aaron demanded of himself a level of belief, 
he's worthy to be the teacher equal to Moses of the laws of Kashrus. Why? Because the laws of Kashrus in, subcon- in, in, in unconscious ways help the belief system. There's something about spiritual sharpness and sensitivity that is, is, is more accessible in a person that's keeping kashras as opposed to the person that's not. My father, uh, years ago when he was teaching bar mitzvahs, almost never was wrong about predicting which house there was kashras in and which one there wasn't. Depending upon how the child picked up even the melody of the haftira. And almost never was he wrong that when he saw a barrier, okay, sometimes the barriers were intellectual in nature, emotional in nature, but sometimes it was an undefinable barrier. I remember my father coming home saying, I could have taught the calf the haftira sooner than this child. And very often he could sense that the barrier was there was no cautious in the home. They were just going through it for the sake of having a bar mitzvah, but there was no kashas. So there's there's that concept, okay, that that's involved there. That's a concept of freedom. It's a discipline of what we eat and what we don't eat in order that we should be able to be free. How often do we hear the comment from people that are on different drugs and medications and they say to themselves, how I wish I could be able to manage and cope without it. It's a dependency, okay? It's a dependency. And, this, and what the halachas of Kashus are saying is but that by the discipline of we- staying away from certain things, you don't become dependent upon them, and you become freer in what you really have to do and what you really can address in your life. And that's really what the matzah is all about. Let's go on to the second one, Mara. Okay? All of the nights of the year... Okay, we eat all kinds of vegetables. Tonight we eat marer. Now this question is an utterly confusing. It's utterly confusing to the child that's asking. Tonight we're supposed to be celebrating our freedom. And of all nights of the year, we're eating bitter things. That commemorates, seemingly, the bitter times that we had in Egypt. Now let's make up our minds. Is this a party or is this a, is this a sad occasion? What's happening over here? And that's the confusion of the child. Right? It's pointed out. I mean, the child has the confusion. Every other night we don't dip. Tonight we dip, which is a, is a sign of royalty, a sign of freedom. All of the other nights, it doesn't matter how we sit tonight, we sit free. But here, in the middle of this whole thing, we're eating martyr. It doesn't make any sense to the child. What's the answer to this question? <coughs> So there are two answers to this question and they're both extremely insightful. If you look later on in the Haggadah, and we'll point it out later on, and the answer is in these things that we see later on in the Haggadah. It says that a person has to go through three things. Pesach, Masa, and Marah. Okay? Now, I've got a serious problem with this. Pesach happened on 14 days in Nisan. Matzah was what they baked as they were leaving. Fine. Murrah is a throwback to the years that they were in Egypt. So when we're talking about Pesach, Matzah, Murrah, why is it in such a lopsided order? We should have Murrah first, for whatever reason it's there, 
and then Pesach, and then Matzah. But after Pesach and Matzah, which is throwing off the yoke of Egypt and gaining freedom, then Mara? Then we start talking about Mara? Doesn't it leave, leave a bitter taste in our mouths? What is it supposed to be? So there are two very insightful answers to this. The first answer is that we really don't know how bitter it is until we gain our freedom. In other words, while we're going through the states of captivity, and unfortunately for years, tens of years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, we come to a point in time that we lose our sensitivity to how bitter Gullus really is. We don't really know what we're missing. We're so far away from it that we don't even know what we're really missing. There's a joke that's said that's a very, you know, that's unfortunately very, has a deep truth to it. How one businessman was asking another businessman, what will you do if this happens? Won't it jeopardize your business? So he says, you know, I'll do this and this. And then, then the businessman says, and what will happen if this happens in your business? So he says, I'll do this and this. And then he gets smart and he says, and what happens if Mashiach comes and takes us all back to Eretz Yisrael? What, what's going to be with your business? His answer is, I'll worry about it when it happens. In other words, our mindset is, I'll worry about Mashiach when he comes. That's a problem I'll deal with then. In other words, sometimes we go, become so acclimated to what we're in and so used to what we're in, we don't even realize how far away we are from the greatness that is potentially ours. So the Jew really didn't know his bitterness until he experienced freedom. And that's why after, after Pesach and Matzah, then we first eat the marer to understand through the, from the vantage point of freedom what is the bitterness of not being free. Then, it, then it, it's, it's much clearer. This is one concept. How does that relate to the Pesach night? It relates to the Pesach night in a beautiful way. Because if you go through the whole process of freedom with the mitzvahs and the sipriyitzis mitzrayim and everything else, a person becomes elevated and he becomes uplifted. And then, but I'm in Golis. But I'm not. In other words, I've just experienced freedom, but the reality is that I'm still on 39th Street. And I'm not on Rechayv Shmuel Hanavi or on Harnaif or some other place. Right? So in relationship to the freedom that I've now experienced, I can feel the bitterness of where I am. And there's a, there's a function to that. Because if I can feel the bitterness of where I am, then I can strive to extricate myself from it. I can want to extricate myself from it. And from that, I can gain a freedom. It's a very interesting thing that after a person leaves the world, God asks the person, a whole list of questions. Were you honest in business? Were you pleasant with people? Did you establish pieces of time in every day that were for learning? And then God asks the person, and were you hoping for Mashiach? Now what on earth does that have to do with anything? If I was, if I wasn't, but I left the world before Mashiach came. What is God asking, were you hoping for Mashiach? So my Rebbe, Zechariah Levracha, Blessed memory gave a very insightful answer. He said, when we get up there, 
we have to, every person has failings it's human but the thing that we can say to God is that we were in an environment that we really didn't want to be in and we weren't happy with the environment and if we would have been in a better environment we would have been better but we got caught up in the spirit of the time okay so please take that into consideration in my failings so God says fine I definitely will take it into consideration but I want to know if you wanted to get out of the environment I want to know if you were yearning for a better environment you can't burn the candle from both ends you can't claim that it was because I was in a bad environment and I really want and and if I would have been in a better environment it would have been good and at the same time you know deep down that you enjoyed every moment of that environment and you didn't want the environment to change and that's why God asked see peacefully Yeshua were you waiting for the environment did you want the environment in other words granted I'll accept it you were controlled by your environment but did you want a better environment were you yearning for a better environment okay and that's really the function that after going through the night of freedom we have a better way of tasting the bitterness and that's good because if we can taste the bitterness then we can want to extricate ourselves from it this is one answer another answer that's given <coughs> and this is also a beautiful answer is that that once the Jew experienced freedom freedom is 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 not only um, it's not only something to enjoy and to be delighted about but there's also a responsibility it's not only a privilege but it's a responsibility when the Jew left and he became free that meant he grew to a new level growing to a new level is definitely a privilege but there's also a responsibility with it now that you're on this new level what you did before is not acceptable anymore and if you fall away from the, from the level okay things are going to happen to you to bring you back to that level so in other words if you would never have gotten your feet off the ground and grown and gotten to this higher level so you messed up a little bit what did you do already what did you harm already you didn't hurt anything so much right? but if you begin to grow there's a price with growth the price of growth is that once you attain and you assume a higher level there is this responsibility to keep to the higher level and that's the mara that comes after the matzah after the Jew acquires freedom and reaches a higher level that is going to be the forebearer of marar because the moment that, in other words once the Jew reaches that higher level he has to function on that higher level and if he slips God's going to bring Mara into, into it to bring him back to the higher level. So while there is a privilege and a delight in growing to that higher level, there's also a cost that comes with it. Higher levels also have higher demands. Higher levels have higher demands. And that's what the Chumash says. Right? I was I you I gave you the opportunity to become closer to me more than anybody else. And then what's the end of the verse? And then God says at the end of the verse, and therefore in history you were punished more than others were. Because with the higher level I have to bring in a system that's gonna consistently push you back to that level when you slip away from it. Right? 
So that's the, the matzah and then the murah that comes afterwards. Now, a, 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 an automatic question that people ask is, so who the heck needs the whole thing? Right? A person says, oh, now that I'm on the higher level, so if I sleep, I sli- slip, I get it over the head. And, and if I wouldn't have gotten to the higher level, I would never get it over my head. So who needs the whole thing? But we all realize that that's a ridiculous question. Okay? Because, because what we're saying is that for the sake of not getting it over the head, we'd rather be less than we, what we can be. That's not a mature approach. I'll, I'll, I'll be less than I really should be because by being what I should be, there's too much, there's too much responsibility involved. The greatest harm that you can do to yourself is being less than you can be. You know, it's a person that says, uh, ignorance is bliss, because once I know, I'm in trouble. Uh, and what's, uh, what's with the curse of ignorance? And what's, what, uh, and what's with the state of ignorance? Right. In other words, if you're only thinking about good times and bad times, so then of course, you do the things that are comfortable. But if you're talking about quality existence, so that obviously a person doesn't want to remain ignorant. The fact that I don't remain ignorant has responsibility with it, okay. But that's the price of, 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 of being a more aware person. And it's, it's, it's a price that is a logical and worthwhile price for being more aware. And that's really the answer that comes for the martyr. Now, we're going to get into the concept of acting out, physically acting out all kinds of things of freedoms. 